So it's Ephesians chapter 5, starting at the 21st verse. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of his church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, presenting her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, if you haven't yet opened the Bible with that passage, um, please do, as you've uh, already picked up there. There's some really big and and challenging ideas uh, for us to be working through together in this. And if you've joined with us today, well, you've joined well into our time in this this book as we've started from Ephesians chapter 1. And it can be a little bit hard to put what we've just read into context. And you might be kind of thinking, gosh, what, what have we just read if you came to it without context. Well, we called this series, um, as we're working through the, the, the book of Ephesians, Together in Christ, because Ephesians is all about what it means to be in Christ, and in particular, what it means to be in Christ together. That's the book of Ephesians in a nutshell. And so this sermon, in a nutshell, we've called Marriage in Christ, which I'm sure comes as no surprise, given what we've just read. But I want us to all see that it's actually for all of us, not just the married people amongst us. And if you're looking for a key verse that captures everything that marriage is about, you know, with, with all its great joys and ecstasy in its heartache and its frustration, those moments of, of inspiration and the grinding years of perseverance, well, I think the opening words of verse 32 sum it up for us. This is a profound mystery. Yep, that's what the Apostle Paul thought about marriage. This is a profound mystery. It seems even the great Apostle was kind of bamboozled by it, wasn't he? Now, actually, if I seem a little flippant at this point, even when we've just read something with some pretty uh, weighty subject matter, it's because I actually want to turn down the volume on some unhelpful background noise that, so that we can allow God to speak to us through it. I'm mindful that for some of us, those opening words of our Bible reading today, they can be a little bit like a stun grenade going off. As we start to talk about submission and our ears are left ringing because of all sorts of things that those words might trigger for us. And I want to say really clearly that if that is the case for you, 
I want to assure you of our desire to, to listen and to support and to encourage you uh, in any of those struggles. Um, recognising that this morning might raise a whole bunch of significant and weighty things. Um, Rick and Margaret Ford have kindly agreed uh, with me to be available after our gathering. Uh, if you'd find it helpful to pray, just come on over to this side at the front and we'd love to just hear if there are particular things that we can pray for you. But I do want to ask that we would all come together to seek to hear what God is saying to us through this passage. So with that in mind, let's jump on in. But of course, we are jumping in at the deep end, aren't we? If we read verses 21 and 22, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, on your average Sunday morning, that can seem like a pretty jarring place to start. So it's actually helpful to see that, that this is carrying on from the train of thought that we picked up with last week. It's a bit tricky to see in most of our English Bibles. They've got a helpful heading there, but it kind of breaks things up between verse 20 and 21. And, and what we need to realise is that what we're coming to today is carrying on from some ideas that began in verse 18. In verse 18, we were called to be filled with the Spirit, to live a life full of the Spirit, that instead of grasping for ourselves, we would be giving ourselves. And so being filled with the Spirit, well, that actually means four things, as Paul sums it up. It means, from verse 19, speaking to one another in spiritual songs. It means singing and making music with your heart, uh, from your heart to the Lord, giving thanks to God, and now submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's all carrying through as a package deal. And so we're actually heading into a whole section that gets right down to the nitty-gritty of, of a Spirit-filled life, empowered by God's Holy Spirit. And it runs right through to the end of the letter. And so in short, verse 21 helps us to see that all our relationships are to be lived in light of our relationship with Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as we get started, it's helpful to clarify that that doesn't mean that everyone submits to each other in, in exactly the same way, aside from the fact that that logically doesn't make sense. It's also not what Paul goes on to describe through the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, where there are three pairs of complementary relationships. Husbands and wives, children and fathers, slaves and masters. And it's good for us to know today when at least slaves and masters sounds like a, you know, a category we have no relationship with. Those three pairs of relationships, they actually sum up the typical household in Ephesus. And so instead of us trying to think, oh, where do I, where do I fit in here? Am I the father or, the, or the, the, the child or the slave? We should see that what Paul is doing is illustrating the comprehensive nature of living in Christ. It impacts the whole household and all of the relationships within it. But our reverence for Christ will be expressed in all of those relationships, but differently depending on our situation in life. And of course, today we're looking at how it impacts marriage. So from verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, there is clearly a lot going on here. So I just want to make some brief comments to help us to understand it. And there's some things to emphasize. First, out of respect for Christ, 
Christian wives are called to submit yourselves. To state the obvious, these verses that I've just reread, they are written to wives, not to their husbands. It's a picture of submission that is willingly offered, not imposed or extracted. There is no justification here whatsoever for husbands to claim any form of male dominance. And blokes, I have to say, if you are a husband who has been tempted to read this verse in that way, I would love to take the time to sit down with you and to to wrestle with the implications of what we have before us. And to the married women here, you need to hear really clearly that if your husband is at any point seeking to impose submission on you, especially if he does it on the basis of this verse, then he is in the wrong. And you have the support of your pastor and your church to to seek safety and counsel and support. Please come and speak with me if that is your situation with the assurance that you will be heard. That's the first point to emphasise. Submit yourself, something offered, not taken. The second thing to emphasise, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And the emphasis here is on the overriding submission that we all have to the Lord Jesus, which means that there is actually a boundary uh, around a wife's submission to her husband that she doesn't join him in ungodliness because the submission that she offers is actually under the greater heading of her submission to Jesus. And in fact, as countercultural as this passage feels for us today, it's good for us to realise that bit, that would have rocked the boat in first century Ephesus. Because the average husband in Ephesus, well, he would have thought that his word was law in his little domain of his household. The thought that there might be an authority higher than him that would dictate how things take place in his house. Now that, that would have been controversial. But thirdly, I think it's also helpful for us to see how Paul makes the connection between the husband's role and that of Christ. Let me read verse 23 again. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Do you notice that the emphasis here is not on Christ as Lord, but as saviour? Which is to say that the primary call for wives to submit is not a call to obedience, but to willingly allow their husband to serve. I think that difference in emphasis, it's carried on as we, as we got to the, the sort of the clarification in verse 33 where wives are called to respect their husbands and next week we'll see the contrast because children and slaves are specifically called to obey. So when you come to a passage like this, let's be really careful not to import a whole bunch of our cultural assumptions about traditional role models or, or, or even down to who makes the decisions in a relationship. That's not the primary focus here. It may be a part of how it is expressed at times, but only because the emphasis is placed on the husband's role in service. So, a Christian wife is called to submit to her husband, but that is something that is offered, not demanded. It sits under the greater submission to Christ and it's fundamentally her submission to allow her husband to serve her. But even with all of those clarifications, this is a really big call. It's an immense thing for a wife to willingly submit to her husband with all of his imperfections, all of his inadequacies. And for me to stand here and to suggest this in 21st century Adelaide, well, gosh, we might think, is this all just 
Is this all just a throwback, so out of date? And so we might wonder, is this just some reflection of the patriarchal society of the day when Paul wrote this? Well, to help us to consider that question, let's look at what is said to Christian husbands in verse 25 through 30. Reading just verse 25 at this point, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, let me make some brief comments. First, you see that the mirror of the wife's offer of submission is not the husband's assumption of control. It's it's that he love his wife as he has been loved by Jesus. And in particular, from verse 25, we're reminded, how did Jesus love? Well, he gave himself up for the church, for us. This love is self-giving, not self-imposing. So yet again, we see very clearly there is absolutely no excuse for a husband to seek to exercise control and abuse, whether it's physical or or emotional, financial or sexual. It's a self-giving love. And in verse 26 and 27, a husband's goal is set out for us because it's to reflect Christ's goal for us, a very great good. To state the obvious, a husband can't be his wife's saviour, only Jesus can take away our sins. But I think we've got this wonderful trajectory presented to us, kind of a direction of concern that a Christian husband should have for his wife. For a start, it's a pretty lofty goal, isn't it? Did you see just the kind of language that the Apostle Paul used here? Uh, to, To vivid words to talk about what a wonderful thing that Jesus has done for the church. So at the very least, a Christian husband can never be content with things just being okay, meh, for his wife. He is aiming for his wife's very great good. And I think the spiritual nature of the analogy is is relating husbands and wives to Christ and the church. It implies that part of the Christian husband's concern is for his wife's spiritual good. We're called to pursue the same goal for our wives that Christ pursued for us all, holiness in Christ. Not that I can force my wife, Peter, to be more holy, but by laying down my own preferences to serve her. And at a very practical level, blokes, there are some really tangible things for us to heed here. At the very least, we should be praying for our wives, praying that they would grow in Christ. But I think it'll also mean that we do everything that we can to to help her enable her to get to church, to have time in a busy day and a busy week, to spend time reading the Bible on her own and with others, which might mean, for example, guys, you just need to take the kids off her hands a little bit more often, to lay down our lives that we might lift up our wives. That wasn't meant to rhyme, but it does. Then from verse 28 to 30, Paul shifts the focus a bit and and he picks up on the picture of the body of Christ, so that in verse 29, the Christian husband is to feed and care for his wife, just as Christ does the church. Now, again, I just want to clarify this because I found it really helpful for me to realise that those words, feed and care for, they're actually really important. If you look at a few different English translations, you can see how they're translated differently at different points and and that sometimes helps us to capture the, the kind of the gist of it. You could easily translate them as nourish and cherish, My point is, these are very tender words. There's no transaction 
I have to be the primary breadwinner to feed my wife. These are tender words. It's not a task. It's an attitude of nourishing and cherishing your wife. And do you note, I didn't highlight this for the, for the wives, but the same applies in both sense, that there's no out clause that depends on what the other spouse is like. There's no statement there about whether the husband or the wife is a Christian. There's certainly no mention there of just how easy they are to love. It doesn't say, husbands, if your wife submits to you, oh, then love her like Christ loved the church. No, in fact, if the analogy of Christ and the church carries any weight, then it reminds us that we are all entirely unworthy and yet Jesus laid down his life. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the point is that the call is for Christian husbands to serve their wives in the model of Jesus that their expression of headship, the, the image and the word used here, it's, it's an emphasis on servant-hearted leadership for the good of their wives, not their own selves. And all of that is out of respect for Jesus' rule over them both. So I hope that we can see that this is a really big call for the Christian husband. It's a call to sacrificial service, to laying aside his own preferences for the good of his wife. And I think it's helpful for us to appreciate just how radically countercultural that was in first century Ephesus. In a culture where women were considered to be nothing more than property, inferior in every way to their male counterpart, in so many ways simply to be exploited for their husband's purposes, this is profoundly countercultural. And if we are tempted to dismiss the instructions for wives to offer submission to their husbands as being out of date today, well, I think it's really helpful for us to see that, that actually the gospel is countercultural for us all. So for husbands and wives, it's the call to be shaped by the cross, not by our culture. It's a call for both wives and husbands to conduct their relationships in light of their relationship with Jesus. And that's where Paul takes us as he sums it up in verses 31 to 33. For this reason, he writes, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. All right, see, Paul said it. This is a profound mystery. Who can get their heads around it? But he's not actually being tongue-in-cheek and having a dig at just how hard marriage is. I think he's actually telling us something about the gospel and something about marriage. For one thing, I think it is simply astounding that Christ would unite himself with us in such an intimate way that the intimacy of marriage could you know, be a a representation of it, a reflection of it. There's a sense in which the gospel itself is a profound mystery that we can't get our heads around, that the glorious Son of God would unite himself with us, that he would call us his bride. But it is also a comment on marriage, that there's something really profound going on in Christian marriage. For one thing, any of us that have been married 
or contemplated it or just lived in the same house as another person, surely we can appreciate that it is remarkable that against all of the odds, God can bring two sinful people together and have them live together in such a way that somehow they might reflect the Lord Jesus in His love and mercy. That in itself says that there's something profound going on in marriage. You see, God's intent for marriage is that it should point beyond itself to a wonderful reality of what God has done for us in Jesus. And I think it's good for, the, for, for us to see how this challenges a whole bunch of assumptions that we might have about what marriage even is. So, we've had marriage debates in our country um, for the last few years. That's been really good to kind of wrestle with what, what marriage is. I mean, on the one hand, does marriage simply just describe something? As if it's merely another way of telling people that, that two people love each other. It's, it's describing a relationship. And yes, at one level, it is that. It's a public statement of that love and commitment. But it's more than that. We might tend to think that marriage does something because it is that legal arrangement that formalises a relationship in the government's eyes and before others as well. There's no question, it, it does do that. But what we're seeing here is that marriage doesn't just describe something or just do something, but that marriage means something. You see, in this statement of marriage in verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, the same passage that Jesus himself referenced when he taught about marriage. And it sums up that in its essence, marriage brings together two things that are uniquely alike and yet complementary in their difference. Let's think about that. Marriage brings together two humans. We are all uniquely alike as bearers of the image of God, and yet different as male and female. And this mirrors God's much bigger project of bringing two, together two things that are uniquely alike, and yet complementary in their difference, as He unites His Son with His church. We are uniquely alike Jesus because He is the image of the invisible God and He's united with us, His image-bearing creatures, Christ and His body. And yet complementary in our difference, none of us would claim to be Jesus Himself, it is Christ and the church, Creator and those created, Saviour and those saved. There's a complementarity. And this is the profound mystery that Paul can speak about when he, when he puts marriage and the gospel alongside in the same sentence and the same thought. For this reason, marriage is one of the great images that God has used to try and help us to get our heads around what He's doing in Jesus. The riches and the depths of the gospel, the ladies that were at Grace Conference, you saw that in the, in the book of Hosea for just one example. But God intends that marriage, it means something. Two images, if they help you, it's like a role play. In a marriage, a husband and wife are meant to play act, to reenact, to represent the gospel. It means something. Or you could think of it as like a little architectural model, the small scale representation of this massive project that God is on about. Marriage means something. And so I, I just want to race through a few more practical suggestions of how that plays out for us. But helpfully, I hope, that we'll see it's, it's definitely not just for the married amongst us. First, a note for Christian, uh, married Christians. I want you to know that your marriage points beyond yourself. 
It's meant to look up and it's meant to look out. It means something that others can look in on. So whilst marriage absolutely is an exclusive relationship of faithfulness, it's meant to be inclusive, not insular. Something that you invite other people to to be a part of your life and your household and, and, and what is going on so that you are generous with them with what marriage means. With that in mind, I know for a number of us here, you might be married to an unbeliever, a non-Christian, and wondering, well, how does that play out in my home? And I want to reassure you that this wonderful teaching of the meaning of marriage, it's not confined to marriages between two Christians. These are instructions for every Christian wife or husband, not just instructions for Christian marriages. So if your spouse is not a Christian, you still have the great privilege of reflecting the gospel in the way that you conduct yourself as husband or as wife. But let me share a few other thoughts for those of us who are not married. If you are unmarried, let me encourage you to neither over-desire nor under-desire marriage. On the one hand, don't look at it through through rose-coloured glasses because hopefully by now you've seen pretty clearly marriage is hard work that will actually call you to give yourself up. But on the other hand, don't look at marriage through a a lens of fear and anxiety, as so many of your peers might do, because marriage is good work that is a context to pursue selflessness and, and holiness to mirror the gospel. I think it's also helpful to see here what is consistent through the Bible, though, that a Christian people should pursue marriage with Christian people. We've seen the radical call of submission and self-sacrifice, which is, that's hard to do at the best of times, but so much harder to live out with someone who doesn't share your core priorities and, and, and the central fundamental view of your life. So the Bible is clear. If you are a Christian person seeking to marry, then only consider a Christian spouse. But then with that in mind, it's actually good for us all to remember that marriage is not essential and singleness is good. I think both our sex-obsessed culture and our pretty family-oriented churches, I think both have dropped the ball on this. So often singleness is pursued as sort of some distant plan B or even C or D, the holding bay until life really starts when you find a life partner and a soulmate. But the Bible simply does not present singleness in that way. Really, it's just the other plan A. After all, Paul, writing this letter, who's an unmarried man, and Jesus, the Messiah, the most complete human ever to live, was single too. Marriage is not essential. It's not essential for a complete or a fulfilling life. And indeed, as Paul will talk about at various points, singleness offers all sorts of freedoms for serving others that married people aren't able to do. So as much as marriage is meant to reflect the gospel, I think it's helpful for us to see that singleness provides another opportunity to mirror the gospel. Let's think about it. Why is our world obsessed with coupling? Well, I think it's because singleness can indeed bring real challenges of loneliness and of unmet desire and a degree of vulnerability and insecurity. And so Christian singles have the opportunity to reflect the gospel, to testify 
to the goodness of the gospel as they affirm that their hope is in Christ and not in a spouse. If the Christian person in marriage has the opportunity to to role play that relationship between Christ and the church, the single person has the opportunity to role play that dependence on Christ and that contentment in Him. So with that in mind, a final couple of notes for us as a church. As a church, we need to see that we are family for each other. We are family for those who are unmarried. We are family for those who are in lonely marriages or in childless marriages. We are family where God gives us opportunities for deep friendship and care for each other. So I think we need to think really creatively about what that looks like. What does it it look like to, to creatively invite people without children to play a really significant role in the raising of our children, if you have them, and in the life of the children of our church? How do we love unmarried people by supporting and caring for them in times of need when perhaps they don't have their own biological family that they can call on? Now, friends, I know that there is clearly so much more that could be said. If you like a reading recommendation, I've stuck it in the sermon outline, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, an outstanding book. And if you want to carry on the conversation about any of the things that have come up today, then please don't hesitate to come and chat with me. Because I want to sum up by saying that we all need to see that marriage means something. It's a glorious thing, but it's hard work and it requires a constant encouragement in self-giving love. So wherever we are at in relation to marriage, we need to spur each other on than that. Whether we're married or never married or no longer married, The wonder of the gospel is that God has done a profound and mysterious thing in Jesus. He has united us with his son. What an immense privilege that whatever our circumstance in life, we get to role play that to an unlocking world who so desperately needs to see. Will you pray with me? Loving Heavenly Father, today you're really helping us to see how the rubber hits the road as the gospel shapes our relationship and it does so in ways that can be profoundly uncomfortable for us. And so, Lord, even ahead of asking for prayer to live this out practically, though we beg that you would do that for us, we want to pray that you would help us to see again and again the wonder and the beauty of what you've done for us in Jesus as you, know, you have united us with your son with such intimacy that he would point to marriage and say, yeah, that, that can be a, a pale reflection of what I've done. So, Father, please help us to live our relationships as that great reflection, that we would affirm and support those in marriage who give of themselves, that we would affirm and uphold those who in singleness express the contentment and the dependence that they have on you, that as together as, as family in Christ, you would help us to point this world that so desperately needs to know Jesus forward to see him. And we pray that in his name. Amen.